0: Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. This episode of Homestead Corner was brought to you by our supporters on Patreon. Shirley Kasperson, Virginia Spots, Jesse Steele, Sam Taylor, Mike and Don Van Winkle, Neil Covert, Aries Jimenez, Holly Harmon, Accursed, and Olly Vasilevska. If you'd like to support the show as well, then please go to patreon.com slash homesteadcorner. For as little as $1 a month, you get early access to all new episodes, a special patron-only podcast, and exclusive behind-the-scenes content. Good morning, everyone. This is Trevor Van Winkle, and you're listening to... Homestead on the Corner. At the end of each act in your story, the protagonist crosses a threshold into a different part of the story world. This is most evident at the break into Act 2, where the ordinary world, or at least the world that is ordinary to the protagonist, is left behind in favor of the extraordinary, the upside-down realm of the antithesis. Everything is inverted at that point, to one degree or another. The rural, safe, cozy civility of the Shire is left behind at the first appearance of the Black Riders and replaced by a realm where death is a constant danger and all creature comforts are left behind. The day-in, day-out operations of Inception's ordinary world, strange as they may be, are left behind when Dom agrees to undertake a supposedly impossible task, planting an idea in a person's subconscious rather than extracting it. It's literally a world of opposites from that point on. And in A Game of Thrones, Ned Stark leaves his harsh, cold, but politically simple realm for the sweltering, decadent, and corrupt world of the capital when he discovers that his old friend has been murdered. Even if your story has more than three acts, each transition should, and usually does, include a threshold crossing. For instance, John York's Into the Woods, a five-act journey into structure, breaks down Raiders of the Lost Ark into seven acts, each marked by a major change in location, stakes, and character motivation. In other words, a transition into a new part of the story world. But what about the final crossing? Well, more often than not, this isn't a crossing further into the extraordinary, but back out of it, into the ordinary world. After all, if the protagonist undertook this journey in order to bring balance to some part of their life that's broken, then at some point they should return to their ordinary life to enjoy the fruits of their labor. Or, in a tragic inversion, see the consequences of their actions play out in a cathartic manner. This beat can also be seen in many different stories not always literally, but at least on an emotional and character level. For instance, Star Wars begins with the death of Luke's aunt and uncle. He loses his family, his home, and his place in the universe at the end of Act 1 of A New Hope. Then, at the end of Return of the Jedi, the finale shows him burning his father's body, then seeing his father's ghost among the other Jedi before joining his newfound sister and soon-to-be brother-in-law to celebrate the end of the Empire. While he's lost his father, uncle, and aunt, he's found a new family, a new home, and a new place in the universe as a Jedi Knight. In Dune, Paul Atreides restores his family's power and fulfills his father's dream of controlling not only Arrakis, but the entire empire. But this return is tainted by all that Paul has done to achieve it, and in a flash of prescience, he sees the tragic consequences of his conquest play out across the galaxy. And in Wolf 359, the crew of the Hephaestus, having lost the station but won the fight against Goddard Futuristics, ready for a return journey to Earth, uncertain of the future but content in the knowledge that they have already returned to the home they found in one another. But why go back? Why does the protagonist have to leave the weird and wonderful world and bring its gifts down in splendor by returning to the ordinary, day-in, day-out world of Act 1? Well, like all things in Act 3, it's about bringing your story and your characters to an emotionally satisfying endpoint before the last page. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We've talked a lot about the story world this season, both in terms of its internal design and its function within overall story structure. What I hope I've made clear is that the story world is not just a location or a setting. It is a worldview, a statement of the moral argument through a physically, socially, and psychologically realized time and place. The way in which the different components of the story world compare and contrast should demonstrate the thesis and antithesis of your narrative just as clearly as the conflict between your protagonist and antagonist does. The ordinary world, far from just being a chance to create spectacle, though that is a part of its function, should be used to knock the solid ground out from under the protagonist's feet, challenge them, and force them to adapt in order to bring about meaningful change. So what does the return to the ordinary world represent then? Well, first and most simply, it signals to the audience that the quest is now over, the challenge is complete, and the protagonist can now rest from their labors, as can they. After all, watching, reading, or listening to an emotionally complex and dynamic story can be an exhausting undertaking if it's written well enough that you empathize with the characters going through the ringer. The audience needs a moment to breathe just as much as your protagonist does by the end, and a return to the safety of the ordinary world signals that they can relax. The trials and tribulations are over, and all that's left is to resolve the story's emotional arc. Of course, this is often inverted in both horror and tragedy, with a final shocking blow coming just after you believe it's safe to relax. The endings of King Lear and Cabin in the Woods have more in common structurally than you might initially think, with both working hard to shock and horrify their audiences in the final moments. This is, once again, a subversion of classical story structure in order to achieve a specific effect. Whedon and Shakespeare both knew what they were doing with these endings, because they knew both how and why they were playing against audience expectations. The second reason the protagonist returns home at the end of the narrative is because the premise does not just consist of a thesis and antithesis, it builds to a synthesis of the two. The conflict between opposing ideals represented in the character's design and the structure of the story world does not lead to the obliteration of one by the other but to the protagonist learning and assimilating some part of the antagonist's beliefs and character, or to both of them learning something from one another in a double reversal. In any case, the story world of the third act is a synthesis of the ordinary and extraordinary worlds, and what better way to demonstrate that than by having the characters return to a world they once called home, now virtually unrecognizable. The Hobbit is perhaps the clearest example of this, and as its subtitle is There and Back Again, this was clearly the intended design. Bilbo's most consistent antagonist in the narrative is, in many ways, Gandalf. He's the one who forces him to leave his comfortable hole in the ground, disrupts his ordinary world, and continually pushes him to become braver than he is. By the end, Bilbo has absorbed so much of Gandalf's wandering, adventurous spirit, that when he comes back to the Shire, many people refuse to believe that he really is the same Bilbo as before. People's attitudes towards him have so drastically changed that his arc is evident even in the design of the story world. And, like all mythic heroes, he brings back a boon of knowledge and courage, one that he will eventually pass on to his nephew Frodo, and one that ultimately saves the Shire from Saruman at the end of The Lord of the Rings. Third and finally, the return home has been part of the storytelling tradition for almost as long as we've been telling stories. The term mythic round is used by Joseph Campbell in The Hero with a Thousand Faces to describe this form, and myths are only able to become a round by returning to where they began the ordinary world. This is an idea related to the concept of circular endings, ending a story in the same way that it began. However, it is related, but not identical. While circular endings can be powerful in the right story, they have to demonstrate the arc of the characters in the same way as any other resolution, by showing the contrast between the protagonist at the beginning and the end of the narrative. If an ending is too circular, it feels reductive, like it takes away from the change and growth of the protagonist and the story world. For instance, the rise of Skywalker's ending, besides lacking any real emotional weight besides nostalgia, makes no real sense for Rey as the protagonist. The Skywalker farm means almost nothing to her personally, and ending her story there detracts from her arc away from isolation and towards belonging. Instead, she's alone in the desert again, just like she was at the beginning of The Force Awakens. Perhaps the fact that she's burying Luke and Leia's lightsabers is supposed to represent her letting go of the past instead of clinging to it like she did on Jakku, but that doesn't really read in the narrative itself, and it seems a bit disingenuous for a film that trades in nothing but nostalgia for the past. Rather than feeding on nostalgia, or turning stories into closed systems with no meaningful change, the idea of the mythic round comes from the fact that, in Campbell's words, the boon brought back from the transcendent deep becomes quickly rationalized into non-entity, and the need becomes great for another hero to refresh the world." End quote. In myth and legend, and indeed many ongoing stories today, the solution to one problem often becomes the source of another, or the answer is simply lost in the day-to-day shuffle of ordinary life. Our mountaintop epiphanies, rare and wonderful as they may be, are often hard to translate into the everyday life of work, food and stress that we have to return to after climbing the mountain, and we have to get off the mountain eventually. The central paradox of the epiphany is this. The lessons we learn away from home and hearth can only be fully realized in extraordinary circumstances, but they can only benefit us fully within the ordinary world. Time and time again we have to rediscover our reason for being, journey out into the world or deeper into our own souls, and brave the darkness and danger yet again. The same is true of stories that traverse the mythic round more than once. The peace and restoration that are found each time never last as new problems and disruptions arise and the protagonist has to journey into the extraordinary world once again. Perhaps a different world, perhaps a different part of the same, but always a new challenge that pushes them just as far from comfort and safety as their first journey did. And this kind of truth can only be fully explored if the protagonist finds their way back to the ordinary world to begin with. There is one special case I'd like to talk about at this point, not just in regards to the return, but in terms of the third act as a whole. In some cases, a story is not designed to come to a full conclusion at the end of its arc, but continue on. This is something I'm struggling with currently, as I move towards the series finale on The Sheridan Tapes, a show that is designed to be ongoing for at least four seasons. This is problematic for a lot of writers, and it's why some people tend to believe that ongoing, serialized stories cannot exist without breaking the fundamental laws of storytelling. Because the expected and traditional form of storytelling includes a return to the ordinary at the end of the journey, it's not unreasonable to think that a story that is designed to never end, such as a sitcom, serial, or ongoing film series, can only do so by cheating. After all, most sitcom characters are designed to be universal constants, with no arc or change episode to episode or season to season. The Fast and the Furious has tried to build continual escalation of stakes as the basis for their ongoing narrative, but anyone can see that they left the realm of believability and genuine character growth behind several films ago. And yes, even my all-time favorite TV series Doctor Who could be accused of rigging the game by constantly replacing the main character every three to five years, replaying the same narrative beats with a different version of the Doctor. It's a hard balance to strike for an ongoing series, which is one of the reasons why most of them have full teams of writers and occasional guest writers creating them, to find new places to go with these characters without breaking their core appeal. An evil Doctor Who is a fun idea to play with for an episode or two, or even a full series, but everyone watching expects the hero we know and love to return at some point. And if they don't, we'll turn on the show for betraying its core conceit. Having a sitcom character suddenly gain self-awareness enough to realize they've been trying the same thing over and over again for years without success would shock and stun the audience, but the expectation, again, would be that things would return to normal in time for next week's rerun. On the other hand, Series that go to the opposite extreme and try to have characters change to a major degree episode to episode are often lambasted as being soap operas, overrun with sudden character shifts and too many unbelievable twists. But there's definitely a middle ground. TV shows like Breaking Bad are built entirely around a single strong character arc that is strong enough to carry a four-season storyline while being well-paced and psychologically realistic in their portrayal of growth and change. Game of Thrones is another example. Or at least it was until the last season rushed through plot point after unbelievable plot point in the rush to the endgame. Podcasting has seen a renaissance of long-form serialized audio dramas, from Wolf 359 to the Magnus Archives to Wooden Overcoats and literally thousands of others. These shows all ran, or are running, for four or more seasons with a tight, compelling story while only using a small cast of core characters. How did these showrunners and writers do that without losing their audiences? As usual, it all greatly depends on the type of story you're telling. For Doctor Who, at least in the modern era, a strong, season-long arc provides a sense of beginning, middle, and end structure on a season-by-season basis, while the Doctor generally evolves and changes over their tenure to provide a multi-season character arc. But across the whole series? Well, the Doctor is meant to be an immortal who ran away from their home. I think anyone who's watched the show for any length of time knows there's only two ways for the Doctor's story to really end. He fails to regenerate and dies, or he returns to his home planet for good. Two things that this character is never meant to do. That specter of an impossible series finale hangs over the 50 plus year-long narrative, and most people are okay with the idea that it will never really come. Why is that? Well, I believe that it's because Doctor Who is, by and large, not a story about a single character arc. But about everything. All of space and time, and every person who's ever existed, or will ever exist, could have an adventure with a doctor. It's a series designed to never run out of new material, with enough stories to tell and enough to say about the infinite universe, that it never really loses its core appeal. On the other hand, a show like The Sheridan Tapes has a much more fixed endpoint, in this case, solving the disappearance of Anna Sheridan. Sure, the story could be continued past that final revelation, but Honestly, what would be the point of it, then? It has a single premise behind it, and a strong central arc to drive the action. Take those away, and what's interesting about the story goes with it. It may still be enjoyable, but it wouldn't be the same story. It would just be the further adventures of these characters, and could only end in an unsatisfying way once interest wanes. Because of this, each season is designed with a strong structure that drives the protagonist toward a single goal and furthers the overall story, while the series as a whole is meant to feature one continuous arc of change within a serialized framework, rather than resetting these characters to square one each time they reappear. They learn, they grow, and they change, and that arc of change is big and complicated enough to carry the series to its conclusion. At least I hope it is. That series-wide conclusion, then, is when the return threshold is crossed. The return may happen to one degree or another at the end of each season, or even each episode, but a full return to the ordinary world is held back until the very last moment as a way to drive the story upwards and onwards at all times. To simplify a bit, if you want to tell a serialized, long-form story with multiple parts, and no one can fault your ambition if you do, give your premise a lot of thought before you get started. In the same way that writing a novel is much more complicated than writing a short story, a long-form serial is another order of magnitude above a novel in terms of complexity and difficulty. This is largely due to how long you need to maintain the reader or audience's interest through consistent narrative tension and momentum. Remember, tension is maintained through creating and sustaining a sense of stakes and consequences within the narrative, while momentum is generated by a feeling that the story is moving towards some ultimate goal. In other words, they are two halves of the same coin. One is created by making it feel like the characters are moving towards an end goal, while the other is created by demonstrating the risk that they may never reach that goal. Whether the goal used to create tension and momentum is the series-long goal, the season-long goal, or the episode- or story-specific goal will be determined by the type of story you're telling. If it's primarily an anthology narrative with different characters, locations, or stories for each episode, like classic Doctor Who, Star Trek, or The Twilight Zone, then the tension and momentum will come from the episodic stories. This means, of course, that the series will only be as strong as its component parts or individual episodes. If it's a mix of the two, like modern Doctor Who, the Magnus Archives, or even the Sheridan tapes, you can tap into the benefits of both and more easily pace out your overall story arc by splitting it up across multiple shorter stories. However, you can more easily lose cohesion if there's a conflict in tone between the two structural levels. And if you're writing a pure serial like Breaking Bad, Wolf 359, or A Song of Ice and Fire, then you'd better make sure your central narrative arc is strong and complex enough to carry an ongoing story for years without straining the audience's suspension of disbelief or losing their interest halfway through. But in all of these stories, no matter how complicated or long-running they are, there is always a return home at the end of whatever forms the primary arc. The Doctor returns to the TARDIS at the end of each adventure. The Hephaestus crew finds home with one another at the end of Wolf 359. And Walter White finally dies, having gone as far as he can go to take control of his life, surrounded by the machinery that made him a criminal legend and wrecked his entire world. No matter what home looks like for your characters, they always find it in the end. Even if they only get there, in the words of the Doctor, the long way round. Thank you for listening to this episode of Homestead on the Corner. Today's return trip was written and produced by Trevor Van Winkle and featured music from Lauren Baker. Want to see me use these ideas in a real live story. Our new fiction podcast, the Sheridan tapes is now available on all podcasting platforms to find out where to listen to it. Head over to the for show links and more info. In the meantime, Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Trevor underscore VW for updates on both of our shows, and check out Patreon.com slash Homestead Corner if you want to support our little production team. Next episode, the lessons learned through danger and disaster are finally put into place in the ordinary world as the protagonist restores what was lost at the inciting incident, New episodes of this podcast are released every other Wednesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Well, that's about all for now. From the Homestead on the Corner, have a great day, and keep riding.